This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. For all the pageantry, the State of the Union is typically just a stew of bluster, schmaltz, and a laundry list of wishful spending. And this one was no different. Responding to elements of last night's State of the Union, the Cato Institute's Neil McCluskey on education and Chris Edwards on spending and taxes. But first, Cato's John Glazer comments on the foreign policy content of the speech. There was an inordinate focus here specifically on North Korea. And uh, Donald Trump, talk, you know, had guests who were uh, people who had escaped from North Korea. He talked about the the regime, but not a lot there that really indicates that he's willing to talk. Yeah, well, I think actually his comments on North Korea are sort of like his comments throughout the entire speech. The speech itself was very light on actual policy. What he did was tell a lot of harrowing stories that relied on nationalist themes and deeply emotional uh, connections to specific anecdotes um, that to, in order to try to drum up Americans' emotions about specific policy issues. So he talked about you know, brave border guards doing extraordinary things to protect uh, Americans from violent gangs coming over the border. And he told stories about... Um, uh, you know, uh, children being killed by MS-13. You know, obviously this is in order to drum up emotions towards a harder line immigration stance. He also told stories, uh, war anecdotes of brave soldiers fighting in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan against, uh, and uh, Iraq and Syria against the Islamic State uh, because who could not applaud uh, brave soldiers and heroes in war, and this is to kind of drum up support for our continued and various occupations and military operations throughout the greater Middle East region. Uh, and the same with North Korea. So he told this harrowing story of a North Korean refugee. He had crutches. He held them up. I mean, how could you not clap for that? And what it was really supposed to do was uh, drum up disgust and uh, revulsion at the totalitarian state in Pyongyang. But what it didn't do was talk much about what ought to be done to solve the problem on the peninsula, what ought to be done to deal with nonproliferation issues uh, in North Korea. How can we balance carrots and sticks and diplomacy with the latent threat of military force in order to change the status quo in a way that's amenable to U.S. interests? There was very little, uh, you know, nuts and bolts policy discussion. It was really all just emotional stories that relied on nationalist themes to drum up support for Trumpian policies. Um, what did he talk about with respect to spending on the military? It seemed he was very focused on domestic stuff, boosting uh, spending at the border um, and infrastructure, but it didn't seem like he was pushing that hard for any specific policy relating to uh, foreign policy. Yeah, I think that's generally true. With regard to the defense budget, um, it was uh, m made a very muted uh, appearance in this speech compared to other things. But we know that Trump uh, asked for uh, more than the Obama administration had projected would be necessary for fiscal year 2018 uh, for the defense budget. And he's asking for even more than that for 2019. Uh, something above uh, in the range of $713 uh, billion for the defense budget in 2019. So 
Um, he's got a real problem when it comes to uh, defense uh, caps that will trigger sequestration, and uh, he uh, he hasn't figured out a way to, to deal with that, and it certainly didn't come out in the speech. Specifically on North Korea, he says, we are waging a campaign of maximum pressure to prevent North Korea from getting uh, nuclear weapons. Right. Yeah, he hopes, I think that, him, the president, and members of uh, his administration um, believe something that's uh, not, to me, very believable. What they believe is that uh, threats and browbeating and maximalist demands on North Korea that Pyongyang finds unacceptable is the only way to yield uh, capitulation and surrender from the adversary. Um, and what they don't understand is that North Korea has built a nuclear weapons program specifically in order to deter the United States because it's afraid of the threats and uh, browbeating and cavalier talk of regime change that we've engaged in for so many years in the past. Uh, and if they understand that, if they understand that North Korea has some security concerns of its own that are not um, unfounded, actually, then... Only the, only that understanding and a way to kind of make concessions to the other side, uh, maybe offer some security guarantees, maybe offer a promise that we won't uh, impose regime change. Uh, these are the kinds of things, you know, stopping uh, military exercises that are deeply provocative with, with South Korea. Um, these are the kinds of things that might get the North Koreans to budge. Uh, but instead, they rely solely on threats and maximalist demands uh, that North Korea finds to be uh, a non-starter. And so that doesn't really get us anywhere, and that's why the North Korean situation hasn't gone anywhere except for uh, alarmingly close to the brink of war. That's John Glazer, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Next is Chris Edwards, Director of Tax Policy Studies, discussing the big spending plans for infrastructure and the big tax bill passed late last year. From your perspective, I assume the mind-boggling figure is $1.5 trillion that uh, Donald Trump wants for what he terms infrastructure. That's right. The, for a long time, the Trump administration has been promising that they're going to increase infrastructure spending by a trillion dollars over 10 years. Uh, for some reason, uh, President Trump increased it to $1.5 trillion last night. Although the administration still doesn't uh, have any full details of the plan, but a week ago, a memo leaked out with some of the details, and basically they want to uh, spend about $200 billion more over 10 years, and in theory that's supposed to prompt state and local governments to add in the rest for a total of $1.5 trillion. Uh, all of this spending uh, is, uh, goes in the wrong direction. I think we don't need more federal spending for infrastructure. State and local governments can raise their own money uh, anytime they want for their own roads and schools and the like. Uh, 98% of U.S. roads and highways, for example, are owned by state and local governments, not the federal government. So, you know, from my perspective, uh, with ownership comes responsibility for the funding. State governments can raise their own gas taxes anytime they want to fund their own roads. We don't need more federal spending. So uh, he also 
took credit for a great deal of the job creation that occurred in 2017. Uh, yeah, he did. Uh, you know, I give uh, President Trump uh, a lot of credit for the, the big uh, corporate tax cut that was signed into law in December. I think that will do great for things for the economy. Uh, you know, I'm skeptical when in, whenever any president, uh, you know, claims success for uh, GDP growth that happens on their watch. Um, you know, I think some of the you know policy actions presidents take certainly have uh, consequences for the economy, sort of over the medium and longer term. Uh, I don't know whether short-term fluctuations have that much to do with uh, pronouncements of presidents. So, if you uh, had to give a rating based just upon the uh, the issues that you deal with taxes and uh, spending what would you say well again I you know I think overall the the tax plan uh, signed into law in December was uh, a net positive for the economy a net positive uh, for average people and for American uh, businesses uh, there was some problems with it it wasn't uh, how I would design it uh, I would say also that in the long run the uh, the tax uh, cut passed by Republicans uh, won't last uh, unless Republicans uh, cut spending as well. Deficits are set to explode in coming years uh, because of the massive growth of the big entitlement programs like Medicare. Uh, so the tax cuts that uh, Americans will enjoy during 2018 won't last unless they pressure Congress to cut spending. So I think 2018, uh, you know, really optimistically, I, I hope uh, Republicans turn their focus to spending restraint and spending cuts. Uh, they shouldn't be spending more money on infrastructure. That's a state and local responsibility. Uh, so we'll see where uh, Congress takes this. But not not much on spending cuts. But, you know, it, to, his, to his credit, I will say that um, most State of the Union addresses are um, – 50 billion here, 20 billion there for just a wide variety of programs. He's asking for 1.5 trillion uh, in total for infrastructure spending, which is a lot of money. But over the long haul, how does that compare to the spending wish lists that uh, presidents have issued in the past? Oh, I think you actually make a good point. I mean, uh, watching his speech, I, I mean, I think it was a good speech for Trump, I mean, mainly because he stuck to the, the teleprompter, um, you know, rather than uh, uh, you know, flying off the handle as he usually does. Uh, and you're right. I think that uh, I haven't done the uh, actual uh, accounting on it, but uh, it is that true that most presidents, Republican or Democrat, pepper their speeches with promising all kinds of new programs here and there. Uh, there didn't seem to be too much of that uh, with Trump. Uh, again, the infrastructure thing is the the uh, wrong way to go on the additional spending. Uh, but, uh, you know, for infrastructure, I mean, Trump is pushing also uh, to deregulate the construction uh, of new infrastructure like highways and the like. So that, you know, he does move in the right direction there. Uh, so, you know, the deregulation stuff is uh, goes down the right path. The additional spending, uh, that's not the right way to go. Chris Edwards directs tax policy studies at the Cato Institute. Now Neil McCluskey, director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom, notes one big positive in last night's State of the Union. The president spent almost no time talking about education. 
Yeah, it was actually very refreshing for State of the Union not to have a whole lot of lines about how we're going to, quote unquote, invest in the children. Um, because the fact of the matter is the Constitution gives the federal government no authority to involve itself in running schools or funding schools or telling schools what to curriculum they're going to use. And the federal government has a really terrible track record uh, in education, both in K-12 through education, where for the last 15 years or so, until the most recent law, the Every Student Succeeds Act, but No Child Left Behind, uh, Race to the Top, has been just an uh, increasing succession of federal controls. And the country sort of rejected that with uh, Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, and we, don't, we just don't have any test scores or um, other outcomes to say the federal government's even done any, you know, any good in K-12 through education. And then in higher ed, I mean, the evidence is very clear that the main thing the federal government does, which is supply student aid, so loans and grants to students, has translated into massive inflation in college costs, uh, massive overconsumption of higher education, huge numbers of people starting and not finishing but being saddled with debt. And so the best thing the federal government can do is just stay out of education. And the only small mention we got of education or schooling was really about vocational training. And, and in a way, that is sort of a tacit admission by the federal government that they have done nothing but bad stuff, especially in higher ed, basically telling everybody, go to a four-year college. Now we're stepping back and saying, oh, that's probably not the best thing to say, and it's not the best thing for a lot of people. The only thing that would have made the speech better in terms of education was if he had actually said, the federal government is causing more harm than good, and let's get out. Last year, uh, Betsy DeVos, who is the Secretary of Education, had, uh, or, or we heard some rumblings that there, there might be an attempt to federalize in some way school choice. And I know that concerned you a great deal, but no sign of it here. Yeah. Also, uh, not totally unexpected because education also doesn't sort of uh, rise to the top of national priorities at this point. We've got trouble in North Korea with clearly immigration is a major issue. Um, uh, but you would often expect that just as an applause line that the president would say, and let's invest, because the term is always invest, even if there's no evidence we're getting a return on that investment. But they'd say, let's invest in our kids through a national scholarship tax credit or something like that. And the fact they didn't say that, I think, shows really you know, good restraint, uh, or at the very least, it's a good sign that this isn't something they're going to try and push. And, and it's not that school choice is bad. The, the huge danger is that you have the federal government become the funder of school choice, and then it's one-stop shopping to regulate and control private schools. And you don't have to look too far back. You know, you just think about the Common Core, which was a federally uh, pushed, coerced national curriculum standard and set of tests to go with it. And we were really close to have the federal government uh, controlling almost everything that public schools teach. We didn't want to give them the power to do the same thing in private schools. So I think it's very encouraging that they didn't mention that possibility at all. Neil McCluskey directs the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.